Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling and hopefully not getting like engulfed by flames is my best friend and fellow co-host here, Aaron. How are I'm you, good. Sir? There's a lot of ways I could die in this episode. I don't know. Getting engulfed by flames might not be the worst one, though, honestly, if I'm ranking them. It, it's the most I, tame. It's yeah, it's definitely yeah, the most. I, I don't know that anything is good, <laughs> way. but I, I would. There's not a lot of times no. where I'd be like, "Yes, please, just shoot me." But in this series, in particular, in this episode especially, it's like, just bullet. Let's yeah. go. Let's just end it. <laughs> yeah, there are not dumb ways to die. There are just horrible ways to die in this episode, and definitely getting burned is probably middle of the road. Like bullets are the easiest, but. We'll get into probably the worst coming up here in a little bit. We are in the penultimate episode. So if you listen to the show at any point and listen through seasons, you know that we enjoy calling the second to last episode the penultimate episode. Why? Because it's a fun word to say. So we'll say it one more time. The penultimate episode called When We Are In Need. And Aaron, this was probably my most anticipated of the entire series. I will tell you it's because it was the point in the game that I struggled with the most even on easy mode, because I'm not a hardcore gamer, it was difficult. It was not as bad as it was on just kind of standard, whatever Naughty Dog puts in as you're like, okay, this is going to be a fun experience. I did have to ratchet it down to get through this particular section. But I tell you, even on the replay, there are parts of me that just get anxiety going through this whole sequence of winter and the resort and finally the confrontation with David. I remember specifically the first time going through this that I could not get through it. And I think you were scheduled to actually come visit your dad in Arkansas and you made a offhand comment. I'll kick I his did. butt for you, I remember which that. I don't think that, no, ever, ha- you that did ever happened. You did it. You actually hunkered down and did it. If I remember correctly. Yeah, I did. I, I did. Yeah. So <laughs> I was glad to, and it was nice to kind of, get that demon off of my back uh, or whatever it is, the, whatever the, uh, the analogy is. <laughs> I think Dave is closer to a demon than a monkey. So we, we go with that. Yeah. <laughs> the David off my back then. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> so yeah, it, uh, it was is difficult and appropriately enough. Also one of the more emotional parts of the game. And I'm excited to get into the, the adaptation and how the showrunners handle it here. So let's go ahead and get right into it. We're in the dining room. It's snowing. David, as we find out, is speaking from the book of Revelation while a girl is crying. The ambiguity here is really, really great because if you don't know these characters, it feels a little weird and also a little normal because this has been done before, this post-apocalyptic, overly religious, zealous character who uses the Bible as his sort of mission statements or his mantra or his whatever to influence the people. So this is somewhat familiar to an audience that's been watching movies and TV shows for a long time, but we know that there's more to it. He attempts to comfort her. Uh, Apparently she has lost someone and she asks uh, when her father can be buried to which he says in the spring. (laughs) 
I put a big fat whatever after the fact several minutes later because of what we find out. Uh, it's such a great payoff later, but I love just the little nugget here of like, he seems sympathetic. Is he? We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I think it sets him up to be a believable religious leader really well. I It's funny, I looked at your note just now where it says whatever in parentheses next to the ground is too cold to dig and we'll bury him in the spring line. Next to mine, in parentheses, also in all caps, it says, sure you will, David. So we both had the exact same <laughs> thought as we were watching through this. Uh, but, you know, Revelation 21, yeah. it's interesting because it's all about the creation of a new earth. And after the, after the, not resurrection, the, the other R Coming word, of Jesus. Um, no. Revelation? Rapture. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, rapture. It's so, okay. it's all about like this new earth. And, and so it makes perfect sense that that's where you would go to when you're dealing with this world that is an apocalypse and is, is seemingly being reset in some kind of way. And, uh, you know. I think there's a comfort in that for people, even who aren't religious. That's why a lot of people do find, quote, religion or however you want to put it. That's why people come to God um, if they aren't being brought up that way. It's because there is a comfort that they find in the idea of faith in some way. And and David is selling it here really right. well. Um, this is the kind of place I'd want to be a part right. of. <laughs> and I mean, if I didn't know any better. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he really does present this idea that unification and being part of this one group, there is strength in numbers. I think that's part of his message is that we have to, we have to stick together. Or as Troy Bolton would say from High School Musical, we're all in this together. I only know that because my son and I started watching High School Musical 2 tonight. Lucky you. And so good series. <laughs> didn't finish it, but see it. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely great series. So yeah, I think that there's, there's definitely something here there is a level of genuineness, but I know that there's also a level of manipulation, which makes his character so compelling because you ask the question, does he believe what he says? And is his belief coming from a place that's good? And I put good in, in the air quotes because good has been very much defined multiple ways in this series, which is what makes it really, really good. Good. In the good sense, good. So the next scene takes us outside. David's talking to Joel, excuse me, not Joel, <coughs> James, sorry, Troy Baker, who played Joel in the video game, but he is the character James. Uh, he's talking to him about rations for the town. They're in limited supply. And David's questioning James about his lack of faith. We see Troy Baker's acting performance here. You can see he's just visibly sort of disheveled and just kind of worn down. And he confesses that the last six months have been really, really difficult, to which David says, I need to know you're with me. Those types of lines, Aaron, are, are really interesting because if you read them from one parameter or one perspective, it's as if David's trying to manipulate, I need to know you're with me. Because if you're not, you're going to be, quote, buried in the spring. Or he really is empathetic or sympathetic towards this colonization of people, and he wants to make sure that he's got the support of his second in command. I, I think that that's really interesting to see. It's almost a little bit like a parallel in with the, the relationship several episodes before with, um, was it not Barbara, but, um, one of the, the new character, I can't remember her name. It's been a minute since I've seen the episode, uh, with her and her, her sidekick, that kind of side-by-side -side relationship. I think that's sort of parallel here with David and James, 
where they are both trying to get on this on the same page and David wants to make sure that there's no division between those two because if there is then it creates a ripple effect I think that he believes with the rest of the the group yeah here. I completely agree and it was a joy getting to see Troy Baker act like this I, I mean he played not just the last of us but I played so many games where he is a star voice actor and I'd never seen him physically performing I mean I knew what he looked like I've watched him live doing shows and such on like YouTube and podcasts, but it was nice to see him act. And I think he did a solid job throughout this episode. But yeah, that moment where David's like, I sense doubt in there. I was like, oh crap. And I, I wrote this down. Would you, Patrick, as my right hand man, support me if I led a cult to keep us alive? Um, I think I probably would. Because I would want to believe in the cause more than the man. I think that's what James is trying to articulate, that he believes in the cause, not just David. He believes in what David stands for. And I think if we had the track record that David had, where he talks to Ellie later about how he got to where he was, he sort of became this leader. I think if I were in his shoes, if that were you... I would probably believe in the cause because I've seen historically what you had been doing up to that point. It's hard to think about the fact that cannibalism would be on the table, uh, not on the kitchen table or the dining room table, hopefully, uh, wow. but on the actual like metaphorical table of being able to, like that would be an option. But the fact is, sometimes you have to do what it takes to survive. And for David, introducing that was probably a slow burn and probably a necessity. So if I'm James, I'm kind of being immersed into that and introduced to that in the same kind of way, which would mean that maybe six months ago, I wouldn't have thought that David would do that or for you, you would do that. But knowing where we've been the hard winter, yes, I think that's a long way of saying, I think yeah, I would. I think I would too. And I think that's what makes this a challenging episode and interesting. And as we've said about so many of the circumstances people face in this world is that we can look at them and at first glance be like, oh my gosh, there's no way. That is awful. How could you ever do that? But you take yeah. 30 seconds and step back and put yourself in the situation. You go, you know what? I'd want to stay alive too. <laughs> I probably would do that. Yeah. And by the way, uh, Kathleen, the character Kathleen and her relationship with Perry. So I wanted to make sure I... Not really close to Barbara, but we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, not really close. I, well, she looks... Yeah, Melanie Linsky reminds me of a Barbara. So I don't know what that is. But but no, Kathleen and, and Perry, their parallel relationship. Perry Lell. So, sorry. They're Perry Lell. Anyway, just... They're Perry Lell is what they on. are. <laughs> Puns are allowed here. <laughs> Not not even just on this particular uh, series, but in the show in general of AOS. So I wonder where Joel and Ellie were. We find out that we're back in this abandoned house where Joel is still not in great shape. Ellie sees his shotgun, grabs it, and attempts to go get some food. And then we're in the woods, and this is where she spots a rabbit. So this is sort of reminiscent of the beginning of the winter chapter in The Last of Us. I think it opens up with a rabbit getting arrowed by her and then she's going after the deer. So it's a really nice parallel, nice kind of not shot for shot, but a great callback to the, to the video. Yeah. Game. A little frustrating though, for me, I'll be honest because in the video game, Ellie is hunting this deer. You are Ellie. And I believe it's the first time we've played as Ellie. Maybe 
it's a, it's the first serious time like we've played as Ellie and yeah we are using yeah. a bow and arrow and in this stupid adaptation she has a gun because of course she does that little stinker once she got her hand on a gun in this show man she was not going to give that thing up but it's a little bit more difficult when you're like tromping through the snow and you're shooting arrows at this thing and you like plant one in its butt and it just runs off and you're like so mad you're like come on even the Ellie on the screen is like reacting to that. And it's it's somewhat scripted. So it's not like you can, I don't think you can one shot the deer. Cause I'm pretty sure I've like smacked that thing in the face before during a playthrough and it just runs off. That's the whole point. And you have, I mean, you you hit it like two or three times in the, the video game. And I was like, come on, man. Like make it harder on her in the show, but it didn't. I guess we're to assume that she had enough target practice on the way to the university from two episodes before that she's good now. Well, she shoots the deer and she goes after it because it doesn't die right then, just like in the game. And when she finds it, David and James are there. They're trying to take it, but they're spotted by her. This is where David, in his calm sense, tries to negotiate with her. He says something like medicine for some of the meat which I think is the same way in the video game. I think they try to barter a little bit. And Ellie, in the way in which she is talking to both of these guys, is so matter-of-fact. Like, she doesn't trust anybody. And when she's talking to, I think it's James, she calls him Buddy Boy. I just thought I wrote that, that was down, really too. I love <laughs> the way that she yeah. says that. It's very much like, you don't own me. You don't, you don't intimidate me, but neither of you do. Well, David orders James to go get medicine while Ellie and David um, hang out by a fire in an abandoned building. And this is, again, another part of the game that is accurate. What we don't see is a horde of infected that you get to fight inside this uh, this whole sequence, which is fine. I mean, you and I are both going on record saying there's not enough infected in the show. We understand, but we can still have our beef with with that, or in this case, our deer meat. At the same time, while this is going on, David is, he starts a fire. He starts to appeal to Ellie's sensitive side. This is where I start to believe that there is something good about David, even though in the back of my mind, I know he's not good. The way that he sells this is is great because he says things like, I'm just a decent man, just trying to take care of the people who rely on me. To be thrown into leadership, to be sort of being looked at as the guy because nobody else is stepping up. It has to be you. And so you sort of give yourself a little bit of liberty in terms of how you do stuff. So I started trying to get into the mind of David in this moment and think, why would he go from where we know him later from this point or from six months ago? And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he had to make hard decisions, hard decisions about survival, hard decisions about how to deal with, with conflict creating a new world, as you were saying, that allusion to to Revelation, he felt, in my opinion, like it was his job to craft this new life for these people. And it had to have new rules and new boundaries. And while in this moment, I felt like he was doing it out of altruism, ultimately, what I think we find out is that he's doing it for power, which is another great theme in any movie is how power corrupts, how we start out with this altruistic way of like, yep, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. 
And ultimately, if it starts becoming profitable from a power perspective or from a money perspective, there's that risk that that becomes the thing that you're pursuing and you forget about the reason, the ultimate like moral reasons why you're doing stuff. Yeah, absolutely agree with all that. I, I think, you know, even though it's not got the cool infected sequence where you're fighting alongside David, it's essentially doing the same thing. So this whole sequence is giving us a chance to see Ellie and David get to know each other in a way and kind of bond because we have to get to a point where Ellie is at least willing to entertain some of the things David is trying to say. And that happens over the course of a fight in the video game. But in this, yeah, the actor is phenomenal, to be honest. His charisma in these scenes and his intelligence are on full display. The way he's asking her questions so calmly and trying to get information out of her and trying to get her to trust him. And then when he tells that story and, and talks about coming from the Pittsburgh QZ, I find that really cool because the thing that he references, he talks about Fedra invading and the hunters fighting back. And that's being when they got out of there. That's actually a callback to in the video game when Joel, Ellie, Henry and Sam are escaping Pittsburgh. It's kind of an interesting connection because in the show, we talked about this a few episodes back, they don't go to Pittsburgh. It's actually Kansas City in the show where they meet Sam and Henry. But in the video game, that all happens in Pittsburgh and David would have been in Pittsburgh at that time when that was occurring in the video game world. So it's like this weird kind of thing. But I, I love those little details. Like it puts him and kind of grounds him more because now he's been in the stuff in the same way that our characters have. And you have to think about the fact that, well, Joel and Ellie come out of it this way. Well, David came out of it and this is where he ended up and, and how his path yeah. took him. Yeah. It's a, it's a nature versus nurture. So you could have this original starting point for all of these characters. And because of the situations that they were exposed to and their choices that they made, it creates a sort of, multiverse type thing parallel universes like parallel worlds where each character goes their own way and they make choices that could be seen as good or bad from the audience perspective i think this episode challenges us aaron because had we followed david for eight episodes david and his posse or david and james then when we meet ellie for the first time i would almost feel a little bit like the way she talks to him the way she's sarcastic the way she doesn't respect that he became a math, he was a math teacher and became a preacher. And she said, because it effing rhymes, is that why you became a preacher? There's a part of me that thinks if I didn't know that perspective of her and Joel, would I be as sympathetic towards them in this situation with David and James? And I think that there's a good possibility that I wouldn't, that I would feel towards David and James, this apprehension that I would, that I would feel towards Joel and Ellie because I haven't been with them for this many months of moving through their story. I agree on the surface. I think that that's also a nice little foreshadowing moment where he talks about being a school teacher that comes into like full view later in this episode in a very disturbing manner. And I, I think the reality is we know the character of Joel and Ellie because we have spent that much time with them. I think if we had spent the unequal amount of time with David, I think at some point, his true character would have been revealed in a way that we would have known he was different than like, he didn't just turn different overnight. And that, that comes up like it's, it's a 
the situation allows for him to kind of end up acting on these impulses that he's always had. And maybe the same way in some some form for Joel and his violence and Ellie and her violent tendencies. I also find that it interesting right. here because we learn that Joel is responsible for having killed Alec. And Alec, th- this is reveal. fantastic. I, th- the morality and ethics here in play are brilliant because the Raiders tried to kill Joel and Ellie or at least attack them. And Joel killed this guy in self-defense. What they know is that this man killed their guy, like who was out on a party, right? They don't necessarily know what went down. And if you're on the David side of things, you're going to want to defend your person. (laughs) I mean, if this had happened to Tess, would Joel have wanted to kill the person that he found out Tess murdered or or murdered Tess, even if it was in self-defense? I guarantee you, yes, he would in a heartbeat. And it just gives it a, a little extra depth and weight to what happened there in Colorado at the end of that episode and makes it a lot more intriguing as to like, you really understand at that point, the game that David's playing. He is putting on a performance and he has goals that he is not verbalizing yet and is super duper calculated. Well, and it gets a little bit more revealed in the next scene. So after he's talking with Ellie, gives her that reveal, she takes the medicine that, uh, that James brings back to her and she goes to give Joel the medicine. Meanwhile, at the resort restaurant, which becomes a staple in the game. <laughs> I didn't recognize it the first time. I was like, okay, where's the where's the fire going to start? Dinner's being prepared. Everybody's really quiet. I love the sound design here because they're all just sort of waiting. They get their bowls. They get their, their flatware and the clinking of the dishes and stuff. They're all just sort of meandering. And a guy comes in before that as it's being prepared and brings in what he calls venison which is added to the stew. But then David and James bring in deer. And at that point, if you don't know already, they're cannibals. Nobody's dad is getting buried in the spring. He's getting buried in the stew that's not going to get digested by his family and friends. And that's insane. It's pretty gross. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's gross, but it's so nonchalant. And then David tells the community that he and his team will be attempting to bring Joel to justice because of the connection that we find out. This guy that was killed was killed by Joel. It was the father of this daughter. The girl of the dead father gets slapped after saying, you should kill both of them. This is very revealing, Aaron. This is like a a really like stern father that has gone off a little bit. Like It made me feel awkward. And then saying to her, you will always have a father and you will show him respect when he is speaking. <laughs> like, no, I'm going to go die in the snow now, David. I am not going to be in this crazy house that you have built out of people meat. It was chilling to watch him do that because nobody is saying anything else. And then the, the accent piece to the scene is him praying over the dead father meat. Things just got real. I think I've chosen sides. I choose Joel and Ellie right now. <laughs> if I hadn't already, David is a bad person. Let's go. Yeah, this is so revealing, like you said. And at first, I have mixed feelings about it. And again, like you go to the the sort of debate on whether or not 
it's ethical to eat your dead. And on one hand, they're dead. <laughs> I mean, it is understandable if you're sustaining yourself and people have died naturally. <laughs> it is not sustainable if you are murdering people in order to give yourself food. And that's where the distinction obviously will come in to play later on. Now, it's just disturbing and dark to specifically feed a father to someone's wife and child that they don't know is what's happening. And the way that he treats that girl, I think that's where I got sick to my stomach thinking back about how we've now know that he was a school teacher before the fall of society. And when you see how he treats young girls, both here in being abusive physically and verbally, and also later with his sexual impulses, it just really, that's what I was saying about it, this just gave him the ability in the playground to act without fear of being persecuted in the way that he would have in a normal world yeah. for that disgusting behavior. Yeah. It's very much, I would say, a commentary on, in some ways, those occupations, church, school, political, that the public opinion gives a person the ability, the unchecked non-accountability of their actions. And it's sad because it reminds me of things in the faith-based community where pastors have done that. And that's obviously not and shouldn't be the norm, but it's happened and it puts a terrible picture on faith-based, not just occupations, but faith in general, whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, speaking from the, the Protestant community, the Christian community, it's very sad. And, you know, I'll just say this as an aside, I do get bothered when this kind of trope, this kind of thing is used because it's like, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to manipulate people. Let's use religion to do that. But I completely get that religion has been used to do that. At the same time, it's nice to be able to call out the why behind the why. Like it's not the religion that's doing it. It's the fact that it, the religion is the mechanism at this point because there is this thing in him, this thing in David, this impulse that cannot be tamed, this id of his, and he's using faith language. He's using his leadership and his power to be able to keep that unchecked because nobody is going to challenge him. And that's what makes him a scary character because of the fact that nobody will challenge him, at least not in this community. Yeah, absolutely correct. And I mean, I, I think that's what happens in the real world too. It's someone gains power like this and you become comfortable in the things that they are able to provide for you to make sure that you are able to yeah. live and go on in a way that is seemingly okay and sustainable. And David yeah. provides that. And so you put all this stuff to the side and you let it go. And that's ex exactly how we get this kind of thing in people in power in real life too. I mean, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the great podcast series that Mike Cosper hosts is a fantastic parallel to this episode with David and, and kind of how he gets to where he is not, you know, shot for shot or anything like that. But, and I'm not calling Mark Driscoll David by any means, but there are lots of common elements here of protecting the man in power or this unchecked ability to do whatever you want because of that and fear for not being, you know, of not being able to do anything about it. So very much real living in this kind of fantastical world of snow and cannibalism and uh, entertaining, I guess, is the word that I can <laughs> go with to describe that. 
All right, so we kick over to the next day. We're at the abandoned house where Joel is. He's got his wound that's healing. Ellie gives him some more medicine. Then she steps outside. She spots David and his men. This is uh, yet another great callback to the video game where we actually get to escape the house. This is where we separate ourselves from Joel because he's still healing. David wants to kill Joel, but he wants to keep Ellie, to which James is like, She's just another mouth to feed. Maybe leaving her by herself is God's will. David's like facial expression, this nonverbal, it put James like back a little bit. And he's like, cold stare. Okay. It really it, it sent a little chill down my spine. I was like, yeah, don't you say things at all to David. Don't don't go against father because you will be put down. You are one less mouth to feed if you're not here, James. So then Ellie runs downstairs, she gives Joel a knife, and she's like, use this, use this. I forget specifically what she says, but she's like, if somebody comes, you just stab him, you know. She attempts to lead the men away from him, and I just put in my notes, rip, shimmer, <laughs> when the, the horse just gets it. The horse gets it in the game, too. And then, uh, just as James is about to kill Ellie, David stops him, picks her up, and leaves. The way David carries Ellie, because she's knocked out, it's very much like a father would carry his child to bed. I got this weird father-daughter vibe, which is sort of manipulated later in a weird way. It sort of translates into like older man, younger woman type stuff. Like he didn't carry her over his shoulder like she was cargo. He carries her as if he wants to protect her. But I know it's protecting for the sake of his own selfishness. I mean, he, it, you know, it's just a, a sign of what he expresses a little bit later in the episode when he says it outright. He says, like, I, you know, I, I envisioned us being together and running this place together. He, he looks at her as his queen to his king and he sees the violent tendencies inside of her and he thinks that she would be a perfect partner. And so he wants to preserve her and essentially brainwash her and turn her into this somewhat of a plaything i'm sure but you know he he i think he genuinely has a respect for her as well like he he even says it the very first line in the next segment where he you know he knows that she's dangerous he just wants to get to a point where that can be on his side and on his team he thinks she's worth converting i guess would be the right word i miss the gameplay segments yeah. that's the only thing i have to say about it. this whole section is in the game, <laughs> you're Ellie and you're stealthing through the city, avoiding hunters and taking them down one by one. Like you take out a little pack here and then you get a little further and you got to take out another little pack and you get inside the building and you got to take out some more. And it's like really intense. We don't get any of that really, except for the horse ride thing before she gets captured. That's the very end of that whole thing. And then the Joel stuff, like we never get Joel fighting through a snowstorm in the way that we do in the video game. Like we, you see a yeah. very brief here, but like there is a huge segment in the video game where you play as Joel and you're fighting this wind and lack of visibility. And you actually have to take people out on your way on the path to try and go and find out where Ellie is. And it's enjoyable. And I would have liked to seen it at least somewhat recreated here, but no such luck. There's a, there's a particular part there's, that I think was recreated that yeah I guess there's one part of we're it we're happy yeah. with. Well, before after they take off, David tells his men, "Hey, go get this guy." 
So they go hunting door to door for Joel. He hears one of them upstairs. He goes down the stairs. One of the guys does. Joel's not in his bed. Somebody's been sleeping there, but it's not Joel. He's not there. And then Joel just stabs him from behind in the neck. And the sound design was just epic. Like, just, you know, it's just, it's not clicker level in terms of that, but it's, it's up there. This is good stuff. Great way, way to do that background artist. You're great. And uh, kudos to you for that, for the stab. Then we're back at the resort. Ellie wakes up in a cage with David on the other side. As you alluded to, he says, I'm afraid of you because you're a dangerous person. So this respect for Ellie, this raw vindictiveness, this raw violence that she has, David is really giving her kudos. He's really one of the first people to, I believe, call it out as a positive thing. Because it's been recognized by a handful of folks in the show throughout the episodes, even Joel, but it's been sort of squashed down a little bit, like repressed, like this is not who you need to be. And this is the first time that, you know, in all honesty, it's like a, it's like a, a Garden of Eden moment where David's the serpent and he's like, hey, you know what? You're going to know if, if I can release you from this naivety that you're living in, you're going to know good and evil. And for him, he's like, Ellie, you are powerful. I'm scared of you because I've seen what you can do. And it's actually a good thing. I thought for a moment here, Aaron, that she was second guessing. She was thinking, hmm, maybe I do want to do this. Maybe I do want to embrace this raw, violent person that I am. And he says, when it comes to this life that she had, that part of you is ending, but I can help you have a new beginning. And I love that you brought up the passage from Revelation and what it taught, what it's talking about, because that's so prevalent in this moment where he is trying to build a new world. And he's now got someone who is his equal that can rule the world or rule the galaxy, not as father and son, like Darth Vader and Luke, but as, you know, king and queen in the weirdest, like horrific way, because this girl is just that she's a girl and you're a dude, like an old man, older man. And that's just weird. But he has this connection to her that isn't untrue. That's, that's the weird thing is it's not like he's throwing her a bone and trying to lie to her. He is calling out the truth of who she is. And he's saying, this is what will keep you alive. And I can bring you out of that. And we can do this together to where we will not have to suffer. This established thing that I have is what you can have with me. And in that moment, I thought he was a little bit sincere, horrifically sincere, but really sincere from his perspective. Yes, but was he honestly sincere? You know, that's, I knew that would come up because it always does when I say sincere. You think back to bye-bye. Birdie. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. It's a matter of, do you want to do it David's way or do you want to do it the Cheyenne way? And the way that Tommy and Maria have come up with. The acting is so good here. I mean, the, the performance, this whole sequence, both this opening part and then the next part after that. But everything here with her when she's locked up and the way that she kind of, she's calculated in the way that she is talking back to him. Just like he is trying to be calculated earlier when he is manipulating her or attempting to. It's like a battle of the wits, and it's just f- so fun to watch. And it's so gross when he expresses these desires and the way that he acts like she needs him. And I'm just like, no, bro, you have no idea. <laughs> like she, she doesn't need you. She's good. 
Back at the abandoned neighborhood, another one of David's men finds his friend, but then he's ambushed by Joel. So Joel is picking off these guys one by one. And this is, while not what you wanted in terms of like full on Joel survival, we do get a little bit of something, something. And it's this interrogation scene that has become famous not only in the first episode or the first game, but also the second one. He's interrogating one of the men where he stabs him in the knee. And again, sound design's on point once again. He gets one of the men to tell Joel that Ellie is at Silver Lake Resort. And when I saw Silver Lake, I thought, is this where The Last Starfighter took place at Silver Lake? Oh, no, that's a different, that's a trailer park. And I thought, (laughs) Alex Rogan does not live there. And if he did, he would probably get eaten by David because... And I sent you a picture of the Google Maps of where I live and the Silver Lake that's like 10 or 15 miles away from my house, (laughs) which is hilarious. Also that, also that. (laughs) I need to move. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that where Jason like kills people too? Camp. camp? Yeah. It's Crystal Lake, not Silver Lake. Sorry. Different elements right there. (laughs) He has the guy point to where the resort is and he says, it better be the exact same spot your buddy points to. Joel then stabs the guy and then kills his partner. And this plays out exactly like it is in the game. It's such an epic interrogation because it's like he never had any intent to not kill these dudes. And I remember specifically when this episode dropped, when we were watching it the first time, you asked me a, you asked me a question. Says, I wonder how hard they're going to let make Joel go. Like, I wonder how violent they're going to let him get. And this, this was really probably the high point of violence for him, but it was really, really impactful. And it reminded me of just how deeply in this moment he cared for Ellie. Like she is no longer cargo. This is the first time I I felt like Joel in his actions was showing that Ellie is a person, not a mission to be completed. And if it wasn't already obvious, it's obvious in this moment with this crazy interrogation scene. Yeah, I mean, it's so smart, I think, just from a thinking perspective, what he does by saying, you point out the resort, and if your buddy doesn't agree with you, then you're going to die. Because it was just a phenomenal like messing with their heads to try and get them to be honest. And then the way that he doesn't even confirm it and the poor guy's like but wait like i I, you haven't even asked and he's like i doesn't i I believe him and just kills him i found this scene specifically fascinating because you have people who are hunting someone so the two guys from david's crew are hunting joel with the intent of killing him and the moment they get caught they want mercy and they ask for that And of course, Joel's not interested in forgiveness here, but they are asking for mercy for the same monstrous behavior that they would have dished out against someone else. And I I find that dynamic really intriguing when someone would have done something to a person without any remorse, but then acts like they are worthy of some sort of mercy themselves from that same person that they would have not given it to. Um, I just found that a, an interesting dynamic between these two groups. It is. So I have a question calling back to the episodes with Kathleen, the kid that was firing at Joel 
and end up getting killed by Joel and ask him to show him mercy. Is that different in your, in your opinion? Do you think the same thing was happening there where he had that same mental shift as the guy who was shooting at Joel? And then eventually when he got shot or when he got crippled, he said, no, 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 have mercy on me. Do you think that it's that same kind of thing playing out? Or do you think that his perspective was that he's just a young kid? He's just doing what he's told. He's not legit hunting. He's just like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Do you feel like it's the, oh, I think it's absolutely the, the same scene? thing. I think it's, it's survival. It's self-preservation. That's the word I was looking Preser- for. Yeah. Self-preservation. Uh, it is just yeah. your mind is immediately going to go to anything. That's the thing. You're not thinking about it when you're not in danger. And I, I just find it interesting from a psychological perspective, how quickly the, the brain can switch and go from you're the hunter and you have no morality at that time. You, you are going to kill this person without a second thought. But the second that you become the hunted, now you want mercy. But you would have never given that mercy to the hunted while you were the hunter. Like if Joel had turned around and been like, oh, don't shoot me, that would not have crossed that person's brain. But the the chemistry in the brain flips instantly when you're on the other side of the gun. And I just find that intriguing. And I thought it and, and really well depicted in both of these scenes, the one you mentioned and then this one as well. Back at the resort, Ellie's looking for a way out of her cell but she spots something. It's an ear. I love David's face. It's like he's saying, yeah, we do that. (laughs) It's just, it's, it's Wednesday. (laughs) So we left a little bit of, you know, ear on the floor. We forgot to clean up on aisle five. Ellie says, you're going to chop me up into little pieces. I'd rather not. I like the way he says this because it's just casual. It's not like he's going, I'd rather not. He's just like, I'd rather not. He's thought about it, and it's an option. It's on the table. It's not as though he hasn't been thinking about it. It's just, yeah, but I just, I don't want to. Then he starts talking about how he's justifying the cannibalism, trying to compare that to what they do, to what Joel has been doing for Ellie, you know, taking lives to survive, which is an interesting, you know, it's an interesting debate, an interesting approach. still difficult because Joel and Ellie are not eating the people that they are killing. So is that the, is that the line that I'm drawing here in the sand, which is if as long as you don't eat them, it's okay. I mean, listen to me, I'm talking about justifiable like murder here, as long as you're not eating the things that you're killing. Oh gosh. So then he, he starts persuading, attempting to, he says, you remind me of me. You're a natural leader. You're smart, loyal, violent. And then he says, You have a violent heart, and I should know. I've always had a violent heart. And I struggled with it for a long time, but then the world ended and I was shown the truth. This is the part where I think, is something crazy going to happen? Because now he's confessing like the real David. This isn't the David that's like, I was a teacher becoming a preacher. He's like, no, this has always been who I am. He has clearly gotten everything figured out, except he's lonely and he needs a partner in this. And that's how, you know, going after Ellie was sort of his his motive. It's just really, really scary. Yeah, this is where he says that line I mentioned a little bit earlier or alluded to, where he says, I've always had a violent heart. And I struggled with it, but then the world ended and I was shown the truth. 
And that's that rant you're talking about where he starts praising cordyceps for opening his mind. I actually wrote down in my notes in all caps, nutcase at this point, uh, because this is when you realize he is off the reservation completely and he has bought into justifying what has happened or using the situation that has happened to justify what he always wanted to do and get away with, as we talked about. And it's just gross. It's disgusting behavior. It is selfish and controlling and abusive and all sorts of awful things. And luckily, our girl is too smart for that nonsense. She is. She plays it. She is. And I love and she, it. I she freaking does. love it. <laughs> it's so good. Bites his fingers, leaves, and she says, tell him Ellie is the girl who broke your It's It's fantastic. Fingers. When she screams it, it's just, and blood's on her face and... It's really smart because of the way she lures him into the bars. And she she makes him yeah. think that she is interested in him and lets him get closer and closer and then nails him. And I, it's just, it's fantastic. Like, yeah. she uses that same violent streak to reject him. And it's, oh, yeah, it's so good. I thought the exact same thing, that what he sees as powerful, yeah. so does she. But the way in which it's used is completely mm-hmm. different. And it's it's really great. Joel is on the way. He's trying to find her. He makes his way to the resort. He finds her backpack. He then goes through some doors to a boathouse. He sees Shimmer hanging up dead, sad face, and also some hanging dead bodies. Again, if we didn't know by now that these guys were cannibals, <laughs> here's some more obvious hints there. And then Ellie gets pulled from her prison. And she's thrown onto the table. She shows David her infection bite, but he doesn't believe her. But it gives her time to grab the cleaver and stab James in the neck. Man, it's just completely raw. There's no slow motion. There's no drama to it. It's just pick the thing up, stab him, run. Because that's mm-hmm. that's what we're in. That's what we have. We have Ellie, who that's instinctual. That's what she's going to do. And it leaves us like with what we get set up with, which is the the confrontation that takes yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, everything about that scene is awesome. I love the the trick that she pulls where she's just like, I'm infected and now so are you. She's so smart. She thinks on her feet. And that saves her, you know, in moments like this and some other ones in her life and journey. I, I like the, the line, what did you say? Everything happens for a reason, right? Like she's so snarky, even in the most dangerous of times. Mm-hmm. And I actually wrote down and then yeah. she meet Cleaver's buddy boy in the neck because I just, I just love the poor buddy boy. <laughs> it's, a great, it, it's, it's great. It's great. <laughs> it's great effects. I mean, it's as good as any horror movie, honestly, like it's gross. Like it just opens up and Troy, whatever his name is. I don't even know what his name is. It's not James, James and James, like James falls down on the wall, <laughs> laying down. And the other interesting part about this scene is also more of that. David reveal is just how, completely calculated how disturbingly dead set he is he just walks over nonchalantly and pulls the meat cleaver out of his neck and goes off to stalk ellie like i I couldn't do that patrick i mean that's where we differ like if if someone murdered you in front of my face and there was a meat cleaver stuck in your neck and you were dying i don't even think james was quite dead at this point i would not just ignore you and pull the meat cleaver out to go attack the person while you continued bleeding to death. Right. I, I would be dead myself or something because I would be in shock that I just lost my friend. 
Uh, unlike <laughs> David here. David's just like, oh, I guess that's dinner. Let but me get just, the meat cleaver. I got somebody else to go kill. But it speaks to the lack of empathy that he has for anybody else. This is the point that he's gotten to where it's about his survival and that he doesn't have any kind of accountability or any kind of loss that he feels. There's no grieving with him. It's really all about, okay, what's next? How do I solve this problem? And in this case, he's got this single track mind. He's got this one track mind and that's, I am going after Ellie. And I say that very strategically. I don't say go kill Ellie because the next scene is the most iconic in the game for me specifically. It's the burning restaurant or the dining hall or whatever it is. And it gets set up by her pulling out the torch or the burning wood and he grabs his cleaver. She throws the wood and it starts a fire. And I put in my notes, here we go. I wanted so bad for David to say, hello, Ellie. Folks, if you don't know, <laughs> Nolan North, who plays Nathan Drake in the Uncharted series, he plays David in this. I did not know until I looked it up, and I thought, wow, that's some fantastic voice acting because I do not hear Nathan Drake inside in David's voice. And so to imagine Nolan North in this scene, it just it does not make any sense. So to, to hear his voice and in the game and to, you know, I was a little sad not to hear, not to hear the actor go, hello, Ellie, as he does in the game. This is the point, Aaron, where I would have shocked. died multiple I'm shocked. times. <laughs> and this is the point in the game where I did die multiple times to a point where I was ready to throw my controller because it's because I'm not a jump scare guy. And this whole scene in the game is nothing but jump scares because what you have to do is you sneak around this whole restaurant area, this, this dining hall that's on fire, you have glass that he can hear if he's close by. And the only way, the only way that you defeat David in the game is by stabbing him three times, three, you have to stab him three times. I've tried to run at him and it it does the cutscene where he just basically takes his like cleaver and stabs me in the back. And you know, that that happens whenever you, you perish And so it took several, 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 several tries for me to do this. And so I have no qualms about saying this is absolutely where I would and have died in at this point in the show and in the game. Yeah, I I wrote down, ah, the restaurant is on fire and she's hiding from David, Patrick's favorite. I I don't want (laughs) to undercut. It's not that hard, folks. If you're (laughs) don't be put off by attempting this. (laughs) it's really not but it is it can be challenging especially at first and the thing that he's getting at is if you make a single sound like if you walk over glass you have to be very careful and there's a lot of maneuvering that you have to do in this section and it's it is a challenge he he like has super hearing you know he's like a werewolf or something it it is insane (laughs) how he notices you which is it's sort of a fun twist in a game where in the video game, game, if you're not familiar with it, you actually can hold down a button and your character has a sort of echolocation where you can see things through walls because you're hearing them. It's like the one fantastical element of The Last of Us that is given to you. And, you know, it's almost like it's being turned against you in this moment because he has this uncanny ability. I, I love this. I love this section, not playing it either, but I like the depiction of it in the show how accurate was all the way down to the the fight and what ultimately happens it is sobering i think that's the word that came to mind when i watched this so he is chasing after her slowly he says 
Neither one of us is dying today. You see, I've changed my mind. I've decided you do need a father. So I'm gonna keep you. And I'm gonna teach you. I, wow, yeah, I know. Yeah. And he also says, no one infected <laughs> fights this hard to stay alive. And I'm like, good point. <laughs> he got you there. Like, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Well, she stabs him, not once, not twice, or three I think times. It's I think it's just once in the once, stupid show. But then yeah, she gets lucky. <laughs> just once, <Come> on. yeah. <laughs> and then he grabs her, pins her down, much like the game. We get one of the, one of the best performances out of her. She stabs him over and over and over and over again. And it's just like what happens in the game. But watching Bella's face, because it's from, I think the game is from her perspective too. I don't remember. But watching her just cry and yell and just this uninhibited like rage that comes from her, it's phenomenal. And the thing that I wish would have happened but I know why, and it makes sense why it happened, is that in the game, when this whole thing happens, Joel finds her and runs to her and pulls her off of David. And we get a similar reaction. In the show, what we see is that she runs out, still sort of in a stupor, and then he does that, and then she starts freaking out again, and that's when he holds her and says, it's okay, baby girl, I've got you, which just made me absolutely cry, because that's the first time in forever that he said that you know we know that he cares deeply for her but the fact that he calls her baby girl it tells us that that's he's taken on the father figure which is exactly what david wanted but for bad reasons for completely different reasons and it's just this really interesting parallel where you have these two guys who are fighting to be a father figure one is from pure historical like i love you we've been through all this and the other is like, I want to use you because I want to be selfish. And and I, I love the picture that's painted there. I don't love the, obviously, the David, like, fundamentally part. But I love the fact that we get that interesting parallel of what two father figures who are violent, who are violent because of their history, but have chosen to love in different ways. One who I feel like is a unconditional love and will fight for someone. The other being that will fight for themselves. I like the video game version, probably just because I had more, I guess, you know, experience with it, having played through it multiple times before ever seeing the show. And I think that there is something to be said about Joel stopping her in her rage uh, and coming into that situation versus letting her go all out and complete it before running into him again. Um, Either way, the final moment is still incredibly impactful like you said it still brings me to tears the the it's okay baby girl and the need for her to be comforted after that experience whether she went all the way through it or he stopped her in the middle of it is the same i find it interesting here that it's david's pedophilia that kills him in my opinion because he gets the jump on her she stabs him but he is able to get on top of her he is physically imposing and he pins her down All he had to do was grab the cleaver and kill her. Like if he had just killed her in that moment, he could have just finished the job and she would be dead. But what do we see happen over and over and over? People, villains monologue or villains try to do things to go over the top. And that's what he does. He is more interested in 
dominating her and in he, he's disgustingly kind of sexually aroused by her in these moments, it's that that kills him because it's the pause. It's the inability to just get rid of her and be done with it. He would have survived that. I think Joel would have killed him, but you know, but yeah. I just find that somewhat nice. Not, not rom I was going to say romantic and that's definitely not the right word for it, but um, it's satisfying <laughs> to me that that awful, awful part of him is what ends up being the reason that she is able to then kill him. Yeah, it was his yeah. hubris for sure. Is his his selfishness ended up being his demise. Yeah, great, great point. All right, well, that's going to do it for this edition of an original series. Next time, we are hitting up the season finale of season one of The Last of Us entitled Look for the Light. Thank you all for listening and enjoying this conversation. I'm Patch, he's Aaron, and we are out of here.